Big data is a phrase no one can escape from. We live in the data era. But what is the artist's role when it comes to data? What is the difference between data visualization and data experiences? Can we feel or smell the data? Today's guest, the artist Daniel Kanogar, will answer some of these questions and more. So, let's start. We are being told to choose between the left and right brain, between studying art and engineering, between creative and analytical thinking. Our society tells us that art and business are not connected. But what if society is wrong? What if it misleading us? The good news is that understanding what art is can bring us to a new revelation. Art does matter in innovation, technology and entrepreneurship. And with the help of this podcast and its guests, you as well will learn that art is not an object. Art is a mindset. You are listening to the Artian Podcast with me, Nir Hindi. In a digital era, and with almost 5 billion active internet users, data is being produced every second, and in large quantities. Business companies, governmental organizations, SMEs or individuals, we all try to make sense of the data that we or our users produce. But with so much data being produced, is it even possible to get to the insights we need? And if we already got to the insights, do we manage to communicate them properly and engage our users with those insights? These are hard questions. But these questions are being explored by artists like Daniel Canogar. Canogar is a Spanish-American artist who has been working with technologies for many years. In his work, he explores memory and its loss. Though he works with contemporary technology, he tends to collect the old ones. What we throw away holds an accurate portrait of who we were, he says. His works have been presented around the world, and he brings art into corporate data for some of the biggest brands in the world. Daniel, welcome to the Artian Podcast. Thank you, Nir. It's uh, amazing to be here with you. Great, Daniel. I'm fascinated about the work that you do, and you already have been part of our uh, art and technology events. But I would be happy if you can tell briefly what you are doing to our listeners. I am an artist, a visual artist. Sometimes also I call myself a media artist because a lot of the work that I do is with technology. Many of these works involve data and motion. Your works are very interactive. And I'm interested to understand what led you to work with data. How did you actually found yourself working with data? I have like this innate curiosity to understand how the kind of the modern infrastructures of our digital society work. And um, also, I guess this is something that most artists do. We're, we're very always very interested in making visible, tangible, physical things that are kind of part of our society, part of our culture, but that people don't really pay attention to or don't even know how to pay attention to because they're kind of hidden. So data, which is like the driving force of our, of our modern economies, is quite abstract for the general public. And even though it's such a driving force, as I was saying, of, of, of the world we live in, very few people really can understand what about data? Where is the data? You know, it's, it's just it's just some kind of a miracle, actually, an engineering miracle. 
So this obviously attracted me, became very interesting for me to try to, for myself and for my audience, to give a more tangible, more sensual experience of data. And this is something that it's kind of important for me to explain that rather than doing data visualization, in other words, there's some amazing people that do these kind of great graphic arts, you know, charts and ways of displaying very complex information, very complex data into a form that's easy to and clear to understand. My approach is one of the artists that uses data as raw material the way a painter would use canvas and the paintbrush and paint to create his or her painting. So this is my raw material is data. And I'm very interested in giving the public an experience of data to give them almost like a physical, sensual, sensorial experience of data to get a almost like the, the pulse, the feeling of a pulse that's beating behind this, this kind of new world of big data that has exploded really in the last 10, 15 years. I think the artists, we are very curious and want to understand and know our times. We want to respond to them. Art is a tool that allows us to respond to our times. And therefore, I have this kind of urge and I would even say almost like a responsibility to kind of respond to this new phenomena that's changed everything. That's great. I mean, I love it that you're actually thinking about data, not as in the context of visualization, but data as an experience. So I'm interested, can you give us an, one example for how do you use data as a raw material to create an experience? Maybe one of your work? Yes, perhaps I could mention my series Echo, which I, I did two years ago. And I think this was a, the beginning, perhaps, of my work with data. It's a series of sculptural screens. These are these flexible LED screens that um, I have an engineer on my team and Diego, and he kind of helped me develop these flexible LED tiles. Yeah, we'll talk about this innovation in a second. Okay. And so these sculptural screens are not traditional screens that you just kind of sit in front of and watch whatever the screen is featuring. These are screens that I kind of twist and bend and fold and that illuminates the space that contains them. Usually it's a gallery space or the home or wherever it is. I have one in my living room, for example. And the works kind of have this kind of glowing presence because these LEDs are quite you know, potent. They illuminate the walls, the ceiling, the floor around them. So on these screens, these kind of very kind of curving sculptural screens, you see this abstraction, this uh, generative abstraction that is responding to different kinds of data related to climate change. I mean, I have been working for data earlier than that, but it's climate change data is something that I started working with, you know, two years ago. And so one of the artworks responds to active fires in real time around the globe. Those are the red one. I went to see it in the gallery, this one, no? Exactly, yes. Beautiful, that was, beautiful. And it has like these kind of red and orangey fire-like hues that you don't literally see the flame. You just see these kind of, in fact, that particular piece, that artwork is facing the wall. It's basically, it kind of turns around a corner. So you see this kind of glowy, ember-like um, colors on the light. And the more, the more fires are active at any given time, the more resplendent and, and activated the, the animation becomes on the screen. 
likewise with air quality index, uh, with temperatures. Um, I have another one that's with the rainfall, the average rainfall in 195 capitals around the globe. Yeah, th those are the blue ones. The blue ones. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I will make sure to put some photos of those working on our website on the show notes so people can actually get to see it. It's beautiful work. Very poetic. Even though they deal with a very difficult, I think, maybe a topic like the climate crisis. And in fact, it is kind of an interesting clash to create these kind of beautiful objects about subject matter that is really not, you know, that beautiful. It's actually the opposite. But I am interested in creating that kind of like a, almost like a friction. And who said that aesthetics, aesthetic objects cannot have a message that is socially or even politically powerful? Also, I guess it's important for me to create a different experience of climate change data that's not just about looking at numbers or these typical images of the planets that has all these you know, hot red spots from whatever, the ocean temperatures rising or the melting of the polar caps. I'm very interested in finding new ways of conveying this information, new ways that kind of are trying to break through the numbness that I think we have from, from just getting all this information about climate change and all these numbers that are mostly very depressing. I really want people to have a more of a sense of a pulse, the pulse, like it's almost like this planet, this planet's heart beating And it's beating with a certain kind of difficulty. And so I'm kind of trying to enter the sensorium of the public in a different way, in a way that's kind of more intuitive, more emotional, maybe, you know. So that's kind of what I, what's my thinking behind these, these projects with data. You touch on something that's very interesting for me is that what you actually try to achieve in your work. And you talk about this friction. You talk about how making people maybe more emotional or maybe a field a bit of the universe or the planet and why it's important for you to kind of make people experience in that case it can be the climate crisis but you have other data works that work with the google trends with artworks etc etc why what is it about this experience that you try to achieve with your work Um, it's a question I, I'm still trying to figure out, to be honest. And I'll take a stab at it now because I've actually been thinking about it. And one of the characteristics of all these recent data works is that they tend to be very hypnotic. They invite the public to hang out and observe this kind of meditative generative animation that's constantly changing by the data feed that's coming in. And I think... There's something very mantra-like about these animations. I started practicing transcendental meditation about five years ago, and it's been an incredible asset and change in my life. And I think this it kind of started coinciding with my time that I started working with data. There may be some connection there that I haven't realized. <laughs> But I am trying, I think really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find within this extremely chaotic, excessive realm of data, I mean, that's part of the problem with data is that it's just so much of it. It's just so huge. And, and part of the art of processing it and organizing it and understanding it and getting meaning and value out of it is that's the big challenge. That's where the value of, of really good programming and coding and algorithm building is, is. That's exactly where the art is. But I, in this sense, I think within the, the kind of excessive, chaotic and abundancy of it, I'm trying to find this kind of inner order. It's almost like this order that goes beyond the control of humans, that we have created this strange 
digital realm, this strange world that we now have this ability to store all this information, all this data that we're producing, that we're collecting from all kinds of phenomena, from things that happen here on the surface of the planet to things that happen up on the cosmos. I mean, it's really, it's just infinite. I'm trying to find this kind of inner, inner order within the chaoticness, craziness, excessiveness, overwhelmingness of it. I'm trying to find this spot of this kind of internal order without wanting to sound too spiritual, but I think there's this kind of spiritual quest in my work. And I think art in general has a spiritual quality anyway. I love it. I mean, from all the conversations that we had, you opened my eyes to think, rethink maybe about data as more than experience and not visualization. The thing about data, as you just mentioned, that it surrounds us from every aspect and the best is yet to come. And I feel that we are all the time aggregating, as you just said, but the challenge is how you actually make it tangible or make it understandable. And beside the work that you do for museums and gallery, you also had the chance to work with companies and help them maybe transform their kind of data or use their data in a different way. And I'll be happy to hear maybe about the project that you did with El Corte Inglés, which is a very big department store chain here in Madrid, in Spain. And you use their data to kind of communicate something different. I'm interested. Can you tell us more about this project? Well, I was approached by this, this department store in Costa Inglés in Spain, which is where I'm based. And I guess for those that don't know the Costa Inglés, if you're not, if you're listening to this podcast from out of Spain, um, it would be the equivalent of a North American Macy's or something like that. Yeah, so it's, very it's huge. Middle class, huge. I think a very well-run business. They they always seem to have everything you need with, if you go over there. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's like a place that you always, when you can't find something, you run to El Corte Inglés and they always have it. And El Corte Inglés basically has these seven windows on this um, pedestrian street. It's the busiest street in the entire country. And once a year, they offer these windows to artists to create projects. So they approach me and... I'm very interested in this kind of conversation with the general public, uh, leaving the, the safe confines of a, of a gallery or museum, you know, where you tend to get maybe a public that's a little more informed about art. Or I'm kind of also interested in this other kind of public that knows nothing about art and kind of bringing art to their you know, more urban, everyday experience. So what I did is I uh, created a patchwork of uh, screens uh, these were screens that had been rejected by customers. In other words, they had bought screens in this department store and there was something wrong with the screen. It was scratched or it wasn't working well. There was some, some problem. And of course, there's this policy where you can return the screen. And I, I was very interested in collecting that material, which usually would have ended up going to the recycling center. Yeah, maybe it's a great opportunity to mention all the DVDs that you collected and the amazing camera collection that uh, uh, you have. You have this uh, thing with collection of technologies. <laughs> maybe we can even uh, talk about that later. But For sure, and also particular broken technologies or obsolete technologies. Uh, I have a kind of this empathy for them. So I took on as almost like these poor orphan TV screens that had been rejected. <laughs> and I, I gave them a, a new purpose in life, which is to put them on the uh, the windows of the Corte Inglés, which I thought was kind of, for me, I was conceptually already like that premise because in a way, these windows create consumption. You know, they, they, yeah. they 
through state. And then this consumption creates waste. So I was very interested in getting this waste and putting it back in it's kind of where it started, where it started, you know, when it was shiny and new. So anyway, I created this Patrick. There's 85 screens. They're all kinds of sizes, all kinds of from different eras. Some of them were actually kind of uh, not new models. They were older models, computer screens, uh, TV screens, or LED, LCD. And I was kind of thinking of it as a patchwork because the origin of this department store is tailoring. It, was a, it, was, it started as a small tailor's house in close to Puerta del Sol, which is where the first store was. Now, of course, it's something much bigger. But uh, the patchwork element of the screens was important, the way I kind of layered them, almost like the way you do like a quilt or something like that. And I really do think of screens as a modern form of, of textiles. That's another thing that I wanted to kind of emphasize in the project. So what I did is I created an animation that was connected to the webpage for online uh, shopping for the, the department store, which I was surprised to find is seriously competing with Amazon here in Spain. I mean, they, they are starting to do very well with their online shopping. And um, so my programmer and I, we were able to access data, the data of what they were selling. And we would capture the little photograph of the product, the item that was for sale. And through programming, we would eliminate the background and we would just have the actual, whatever it was, the hat or the shoe or the bra or the TV or whatever it was that was getting sold. And we created this very kind of a broken textile-like animation that was inspired by barcodes. So you could see those products through like lines that were kind of thinking about barcodes as the first phase in which these products were kind of coded. You know, I thought of this idea because when I was driving, I was in Miami and I was driving, I the news broke of it inventor the barcode had just died just that that same day and they were talking about the history of barcodes it's actually super interesting it's the first time that these you know products in the 70s is when it happened to they could be turned into code into information you know that's kind of the world we're in now where everything is broken down into data that was kind of the idea of commerce becoming or getting in touch with data so I brought those two worlds together and I created this kind of animation that you could see on these seven window displays where, you know, literally every minute hundreds of people would walk by and it was all live and generative. And we were able to, the, the commerce was so fast that we were able to combine different products chromatically. So suddenly we had one window where you would only get the green products that were getting sold and no blue products. It was really a very complex and in the end, very satisfying, a lot of work, but very satisfying project and, and wonderful to see the craziness of the street and how how they would react and sometimes be confused. Other times, you know, people would stand and watch. It's, it's cool. I guess that someone now listening and say, okay, you put all this effort, you took all these uh, screens, use them again, and then use the data from the website. And what was the purpose? What you try to achieve? Part of the message is how this flagship store, which is right smack downtown Madrid, is kind of becoming a obsolete in itself. You know, we're talking about these screens that be rejected. These actual physical stores maybe are, are not as significant anymore as we're particularly since I did this project. I did this project in February, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And this is just multiplied tenfold that this kind of Online shopping is where things are right now. And it's just, I was very interested in capturing that transition. I was very interested in capturing 
a sense of the products that we consume, how their image, how their code, how they're very kind of disembodied from, you know, like when we buy something online, we just get it because not because we hold on to that shirt or we are able to try on these shoes. We're just buying them from the visuals, you know. And so I was very interested in the paradoxes of of how the market's place has changed. You know, that instead of going to the square of the town where we would smell the apples yeah. and, <laughs> you know, and look at the tomatoes and... <laughs> This is where it's come to right now. So I was interested in capturing that kind of paradox. I'm not sure a lot of people, the general public, got that, but there were ways of being able to access more information. There was a web page and there was ways of accessing more information about the project, but it was also very visually very engaging. Yeah, we, we, we'll put the video as well. We'll add the video as well to the show notes. Daniel, before we continue and talking about invention and innovation, uh, let's take a short break. Hi, listeners. It's clear that our speakers are at the intersection of art and innovation, but they didn't just arrive there casually. They developed their skills, gained knowledge, and more importantly, grew their artistic mindset. Would you like to develop some of these skills, capabilities, or a growth mindset? Then I would encourage you to check our art-based learning experiences. Whether you want to build your leadership skills or your innovation competencies, our training can be just what you are looking for. Visit us at www.theartian.com. That is T-H-E-A-R-T-I-A-N.com to learn more. We are back with uh, Daniel. And Daniel, you already mentioned before the, these styles that you invented. And I'm interested to talk with you about those styles. After years of research, you developed this flexible lead tile that allow you to create screens with the uh, complex, these curving shapes that uh, you are using. And I'm interested, why did you develop it? I mean, how was the process of invention? Normally, we don't think about artists kind of going and inventing new type of lead tiles. No, but artists have always been technological innovators. In the past, they improved and tweaked their paint brushes by trying different kinds of animal and human hair. They mix pigments in different ways. You know, th- there's much more technology involved in the history of art than we think now. You know, we think that now just painting is not technological. But in, in fact, there's a lot of innovation with varnishes, with which varnishes would, you know. So as an artist that has, you know, was born in the second half of the 20th century and has lived uh, the transition from this kind of post-industrial to fully digital world, my innovation, my technological innovation had a lot to do with engineering and digital media. And as an artist, I'm often asking myself questions that want to look at something that is around us that's kind of quotidian and turn it around. For example, I've always had an artist working with visual media, I'm very interested in, in screens. Why do screens always have to be square or rectangular and flat? Why can they not be three-dimensional? Why can they not have this conversation with a space that's much more engaging, that invites the viewers to see it from different angles? It was just a very simple idea like that. Why not? You know? And then that why not? Because, well, let's, let's see if we can do this. So then, you know, the whole research process started and the prototyping and the fabricating. And in fact... I, the more I read and understand how the Renaissance uh, workshops in 
Florence were, the more I realized we're in our little studio here on the outskirts of Madrid, we have a similar approach. Yeah. I mean, because when I visited you in your studio, and that's, that's a beautiful, I think, kind of maybe an opportunity to describe. I remember entering and then there is, I think, the red couch with all your collections of beautiful camera. And there are huge screen all over. And you have a group of engineers and programmers working over there and I'm positive that that's not the image that most of the people have of an artist studio they think about paint on the floor but you were back then working on this Goya project and you had the uh, muñecas the small dolls of uh, Goya so very beautiful and I like what you say about the Renaissance studio because this is your Madrid studio but you have more studios right and I know that you just open a new one where are your studios uh well I only have another one other studio and that's enough Um, in Los Angeles in California as a center of media and technological innovation. In fact, Silicon Valley in the Bay Area is kind of moving down to the LA or Southern California area because uh, so many of these companies are now involved in production, audiovisual production. So I thought this was a very kind of, a, I'm getting a lot of interest in my work in that part of the world, more than say a more traditional art center, which would be New York City. So I have this, you know, planetary bridge between Madrid and Los Angeles, and each studio offers different things. I, I'm very happy with the studio that I've been able to create in Madrid. My base, my studio, my art practice has grown from Madrid. There's some very specific positive elements about having my center in Madrid. I have a question about this working relationship with engineers. What did you learn about working with an engineer? As an artist that comes from, I would say, more traditional art education, how is it maybe to work with engineers? That's an interesting question. I've never really been asked that question just so directly. So I have to think about it a little bit. It's good. I mean, I love it. Perhaps it's not as different, you know, as, I, as one would imagine. I think perhaps my artist mind... is more about creating problems and the engineering mind is more about finding solutions. <laughs> I love it how you define it because I always say that artists kind of lead with questions. Artists, it's about formulating questions. Engineering is about, and design is about solving them. I love it when you said creating problems. Yeah, that's a very short answer. I mean, I'm also working with programmers now for all this data work that I'm doing. And um, one of the things that I've learned is to Let them be. I can, programming requires a huge amount of concentration. Uh, you know, that one little comma out of place will completely create havoc in the project. So it's very much about looking at the results, talking to the programmer, to Diogo, his name is actually. I have an engineer called Diego and a programmer called Diogo. So I talk to Diogo and then just kind of stepping away letting him work when he's ready, calls me, what do you think of this? But in any case, you've got to understand their rhythms. You've got to understand that the logic that they're working with may differ somewhat to the logic that I may work with, but there's a wonderful meeting ground. It creates for a very vital, you know, brainstorming place, my studio. And I also have an art historian and I also have, a financial director, that she's actually a lawyer. And then I have a computer technician. And then I have an artist. And I have an architect. You know, so all these minds coming together 
uh, you know, I, I say less and less my work. And I, I find myself saying our work, the work of Studio Daniel Kandergar, because it really is a plural collective experience. I call the shots at the end and I need to do that. That's what I can offer. But I'm very interested in, in gathering all these ideas as, as projects are kind of developing. It's kind of lead me to another uh, maybe comment. I don't know uh, if it's a question. You mentioned that you have a lot of public installations. And one of them is actually the Zachary Engineering Education Complex at the University of Texas. That over there, they invited artists that work with engineering and technology to actually have or install their own art in the building. The intersection of art and engineering... Um It's interesting because the, the base of both is very similar, but the result is very different. Being in Zachary and walking in and seeing all these beautiful art pieces, it brings in an interactive feature to the building. As I'm walking in, I feel like I have something new to watch or something new to see every time I walk in. I just think it's really interesting the ways that art and engineering can intersect and create something better, whether it's um, spatially or even enhancing communication skills. It's really interesting to me. What did you try to achieve with your work in that building, which, by the way, people, I guess, can see it if they go to the university? First of all, this is a very, very um, significant engineering school in the U.S. and Texas, A&M University. And so they were building a whole new building and they were um, smart enough to commission uh, several artworks that had some kind of technological or engineering aspect, a conversation with the field, the kind of research that was going to happen in the building. What I ended up doing is creating this, uh, one of my curving screens. Um, the work is called Pulse. And it's in the lobby of this, uh, the atrium of this building, where there's a screen that sounds like a snake that disappears and emerges repeatedly through the building or through the atrium. And you get a, a visual optical sense of this one continuous ribbon that's traveling in and out of the, of the walls. And the artwork is connected to the server that controls, you know, the building's temperature. It's like this kind of data center for the building. You know, the, the electric, the power consumption, you know, when it gets really hot outside, the air conditioning goes up. If there's too much water, it's getting overheated. They, you know, all, all these kind of self-organizing, self-regulating mechanisms that buildings have today that really are almost like human beings. It's incredible how these buildings are, through this kind of smart technology, they self-regulate the way our bodies, we can self-regulate. When it gets hot, we sweat and things like that. So I was very interested in, from an engineering point of view, making that visible again, because this is something that's hidden in a computer in a rack in a locker room down in the basement. I was able to tag into all that information and create an abstract animation that depending on, you know, how many people are in the building, the work becomes more active or less active. One of the things that we track in the artwork is internet traffic. And usually in the mornings, particularly in this atrium that has a coffee shop, there's like tons of students on their laptops and they're becoming inadvertently part of the work by connecting online. The animations get much more quieter and gentler in the evening hours. So it's taking the pulse of the building and it's revealing it. It's almost like exposing the arteries and the veins of this building in a very kind of material, tangible way. Beautiful. I mean, you know, it's not only creating motion and flow in the building, it's also giving visual experience of the pulse of the building, as you mentioned. You know, you started to say that you have empathy to all technologies. 
I'm interested why you have this empathy for all technologies, because you also work with very new technologies, which I want to ask you in a second, but I'm interested why this empathy for all technologies? I started becoming very interested in garbage. Um, I think it was about 15 years ago. I had like this kind of existential artistic crisis, one that artists would tend to have periodically. <laughs> Out of a sense of loss and really not knowing how to continue with my work and my career, this is a difficult time for me. Artists, artists just start wandering around the city. And I found myself gravitating towards junkyards and recycling centers and places where things are discarded, abandoned, broken. And it became very interesting to me. Without thinking of it as an art project, I started going there, taking pictures, hundreds, thousands of pictures. And it took me a while to understand that I was starting to feel very identified with these kind of broken toys or broken whatever, DVD players or VHS players, the old model. And as I've aged, and now I'm in my mid-50s, I can now really understand that when... An old DVD player is thrown out. It's thrown out because it's old, because it's obsolete, because it's being replaced by the new model. And the fact that it has an expiration date makes it extremely human. So all this work really became about like the life and death of these technologies. It's really a reflection of the life and death of humans, of myself. And being able to ask myself, Am I becoming obsolete as an artist, as a man, as a human being? So I think also it's traditional that artists in their middle ages start pondering death and life and how quickly things go by, which they really do. Yeah. It's a, it's a stereotype, <laughs> but my God. No, it's beautiful how you say it. And of course, there's a second part to that question, which is not just, it wasn't just identify that connection that I had. But it was then I started bringing some of these broken obsolete technologies to the studio and I started playing with them. And I ended up kind of giving them a new life, giving them a new chance in life by um, activating them usually with projections and in other ways, kind of reinventing them. And this for me was the exciting part that I think we, we throw things out too quickly. And I'm interested in exploring not only the memories that are kind of encapsulated in these obsolete or broken technologies, but also the ideas that we can hack into them and repurpose them and make new use out of them. You work also on collect maybe old technologies. You also work with very new materials and you started to create generative art. Basically, it's algorithm that uh, is coded, uh, established to set a behavior of rules that process data. And I'm interested to hear maybe about this work, but more about what is the role of the artist in this process? If you're the one that create the algorithm and the algorithm create the art, what is the role of the artist over here? Who is who? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a question I ask myself all the time. The tools we use influence the results. Like it's the saying, if all you have is a hammer, everything becomes a nail. So... Yes, there's a filter. There's a filter that the technologies we use create and determine the results of the artwork that I create. In my case, that's even expanded because I have a team of people where I'm not even doing the old, the actual algorithm. I am instructing it. I'm directing it. I am modifying it via my programmer, who also has a lot of input and decision-making in the process. 
um, I, I do also wonder myself, but what, 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 it, where am I in the project? Where is the technology in the project? Is it a conversation between the human element to me and the more you know, technological elements in the algorithm? Or is it just a set, you know, is it, am I just kidding myself and I'm, I'm just not, you know, we're living in a post human world where, or a post art world where the role of the artist is completely being uh, illuminated and it's the it's the you know it's the uh, technology that speaks i believe to answer sincerely i believe this conversation is an important one to have not just for artists but for everyone because we're becoming more profoundly immersed and more used to working with technologies we need to be able to understand how they change us how they affect us how they change our perspective how they change the way we communicate. This presence is something that, you know, like now in the last few months, the last 10 months, we've gotten used to communicating, contacting mostly online through Zoom calls. And I'll meet you in real life. I see the sticker behind you on the wall, which I love. Let's meet in real life. So we're not so used to meeting in real life anymore. We've gotten used to this new filter called uh, zoom or skype or meetup or whatever you want to call it and so i think it's important for us to understand how that changes us it changes us for sure but i think that by understanding how it changes us we can make it more ours rather than than just kind of being used by it and that i think is the purpose of art and that's the the incredible usefulness of art as a tool rather than just accepting for these technologies i'm able to kind of respond to them and kind of tweak them and twist them and turn them the way I do with my screens and and, and, and make them more mine. Uh, I think this is something that we all need to do however way we can to respond to things, not just to receive as spectators, but to be able to process and respond to this world that is changing so rapidly. Yeah. Daniel, we are getting into the end of uh, our uh, podcast, and I have one more question to ask you. Because your angle to data is a bit different than what at least I see in the business world, everyone talking about big data, big data, big data. And as you said, the problem with data is that there is so much of it. And the question is what we do with that. So I'm interested to hear from you, what is maybe your recommendation for anyone who works with data? How can they make it more human, more understandable, even though if they are not artists, but what they need to have in mind when they think about, okay, I have all this data, now what? I think that it's important to understand how humans have always processed their environments, how we have not always, though this is hard to imagine, but we've not always sat in front of screens for hours and hours and hours that we actually would walk through forests and uh, walk through rivers and we would uh, look at our, you know, our look for prey and we would climb trees and we would use our bodies. We would use our bodies to feel ourselves around the world we would touch things we would smell things uh, you know it was a multi-sensorial experience it would have the world this is still with us I mean we don't use a lot of our abilities our cognitive abilities to, to process the richness of the world anymore we are very kind of focused on this very optical screen-based way of processing reality but all this kind of genetic information that we have of how you know we would roam and 
travel and engage with the world is something that I think we could experience data in a different ways. It's not just about charts or graphics. Or um, I think we need to stimulate other senses. I think we need to create experiences. We need to create experiences of that data. We need to have more immersive experiences of this data. We need to feel the data. We need to smell the data. We need to touch the data. That would be my recommendation. Maybe I, I can add that my recommendation maybe should the artist should start teaching in engineering school how to humanize data and make us feel the data and touch the data. Well, I, I think there's always interesting conversations between artists and engineers and I I love that kind of conversation and I truly believe we both do research different different results but in the, in the end we're both you know there's a quest there's a search there's a an attempt to try to understand and process and have a our place in the in the world you know uh, put our feet on the ground and have a perspective on reality and that's what we all try to do as humans Daniel thank you very very much for taking the time and sharing all your beautiful work just out of curiosity where we can find your public works maybe you can give us two three places beside the Texas University and Um, I have if you ever fly into Tampa Airport in Florida I have a permanent piece there it's like this hanging garden in Tampa Tampa International Airport I I mean I have several pieces in corporate collections I I have actually I'm working on several right now um, one in fidelity their fidelity headquarters in Boston I just finished that piece and that's up and running in December. Um, I'm not very good at improvising because I have I have so many pieces and better right now I'm, I'm kind of coming to a blank but um, I think the best page best option if you really want to see the work that I've done and that I'm doing is you go to my go to my webpage danielcanagard.com I try to be quite current with my Instagram feed I'm hoping to share with all of you this piece I just finished uh, for the Nike headquarters in Portland. which has been a very exciting outdoor piece, a conversation piece with Serena Williams, the tennis player. I'm also doing another project with a human cell atlas in Cambridge, an artwork that's based on this ginormous project that's trying to map every single cell of the human body. And I'm kind of doing an artwork about that. So lots of interesting uh, <laughs> yeah. projects. Great, Daniel. Oh my God, I feel that uh, after you mentioned all those works, now we can have another two episodes only discussing those <laughs> works. Thank you very, very much. Have a great 2021. I wish you the same. It's been great. Thank you. So often I hear business managers speaking about data and big data and data analysis. But are we really doing something with this data? I think the potential for organizations to learn about themselves through the works of data artists is huge. After all, we all know about the climate crisis. But in Daniel's work, the one he mentioned, there is a certain poetry. Realizing the number of fires around the world in real time can break your heart. On the other hand, seeing the pools of the building we are occupying day in and day out might engage us better. Maybe, It will make us more curious about our daily environment. No matter what the result is, there is a lot to explore together. Big thanks to Diego Meado for introducing us many years ago. The voices in the recording are taken from the Zachary School of Engineering video. Until the next episode, have a wonderful week. I will be here waiting for you with another episode of the RTN Podcast.
with me, Nir Hindi. Once again, thanks for listening. Thanks again for choosing us, listening to us, and staying with us. Till now, we know that with so many content out there, you chose to listen to this one. So thank you for that. We are producing our podcast without any help. So if you find this valuable for you, I will be super grateful if you can help us spread the word by leaving a rating or a review. It will take you less than a minute and it's really, really valuable for us. Special thanks to Daniel Duran who mixed and mastered this episode and Abigail Dyson, our wonderful intern, who helped us put this podcast out there. If you are interested in working with us and upskilling your team's capabilities, if you are looking to hone and develop an artistic mindset, then I would recommend you to check our workshops and training. All the information is available on our website. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Our previous shows are available on our website, www.theartian.com slash podcast. Each episode includes show notes, guest recommendations, videos, and other materials. We can also be found on our LinkedIn page, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And you can reach us directly via email at podcast at theartian.com. Once again, thanks for listening. I will be here waiting for you on another episode of The Artian Podcast. Thank you.